Welcome to the Commentary Magazine podcast for today, September 20th, 2022. I am Noah Rothman. Jodpod Horitz is out today, but with us as always is a senior. Nope. I forgot your title, Christine. You have a new title. Oh, I'm a fellow. I'm a senior fellow at AEI. A senior fellow. But at more AEI. importantly, I'm a commentary magazine columnist. That's what I was concerned about. Well, I didn't want to. <laughs> AEI is one thing, but I didn't want to misrepresent your title here. Christine Rosen Thank is with you. us. And Abe Greenwald, executive editor, is also with us. Hi, Abe. Hey, no. And joining us today is the uh, former uh, deputy secretary of health and human services, a best selling presidential historian, and most importantly, a frequent commentary contributor, Tevi Troy. Tevi Troy, thank you for being here. I know. Um, Want to get your expertise, Tevi, on the uh, reign of opprobrium that is heaped on the shoulders of the President of the United States for what seems to have been an off-the-cuff remark during an interview with uh, Scott Pelley, CBS News, 60 Minutes, um, in which he said that the pandemic is over. Now, he kind of caveated that by saying, well, it's still a problem. There's still work to do. But that's a pretty definitive assertion. Um, it has the added advantage of being accurate. Uh, but the universe has come down around his shoulders. The backlash from the mainstream press is fairly significant. ABC News, NPR, Reuters World Service, two separate occasions. And of course, the Washington Post uh, editorial board, which delivered a scathing rebuke of the president. Not necessarily on the merits, though, seems to be the meat of the problem is that if the administration were to actually act like the pandemic was over, a whole lot of things would have to happen. Namely, all the pandemic stuff that is still in place from 2022 would likely have to go away, meaning millions of people would lose access to Medicaid coverage. Border restrictions would have to disappear. People would have to start paying their student loans, et cetera, et cetera. Tevi, what do you make of this? Is this are we looking at bureaucratic inertia fighting back uh, against an effort to uh, to rein in uh, these initiatives that these agencies have benefited from? Or are they really frustrated by the facts, as they say, as they insist, that 400 people a day are still dying from this disease? How could you say the pandemic is over when people are still getting sick? Well, first of all, Obviously, people are always getting sick. So that, I mean, that in itself is not an excuse. I don't know if there's such a thing as an off-the-cuff Biden comment, especially when that Scott Pelley uh, very carefully managed interview. So I don't know if off-the-cuff works, but uh, he, did, he did say it. So, then, okay, wait a minute. So yeah. let's, let's, I want to pause there because that was my initial impression that it seemed like, especially since CBS really pushed this hard, uh, that it was a prepared remark. And then we got this uh, not for attribution quotes from two administration officials and multiple un multiple outlets reporting that the administration, at least the White House senior officials, were kind of taken aback and surprised that the president said this. Do you believe it? Oh, I believe he might have got off script. What, I, what I'm saying is that that CBS interview was so carefully packaged and produced that it, it didn't seem like a very spontaneous interaction. Uh, that said, Biden does go off script. The pandemic is over depending on where you are. I was in Florida this weekend. It seemed pretty over but then you go to other parts of the country and people are still in a different mode. And then there is also this issue, if you have these triggers, right? We can do something as a government that we ordinarily can't do unless if we have a pandemic, then suddenly if the pandemic declaration goes away, then those abilities go away and government does not like to give up certain authorities or abilities to uh, give out certain types of largesse. So I think that complication, on the one hand, Biden going into an election 
the midterm election coming up in six weeks or so wants to be able to say, hey, look, pandemic is over and I solved it. On the other hand, if he solves it, then he loses the ability to give out certain things that he was giving out during the pandemic. So it, it puts them in a bit of a bind. Well, and it, you can see that in the reaction, right? That the 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 group that would love to continue permanent emergency forever because of, as you say, Tevi, that it gives them power they didn't have. It gives them the ability to dole out money that they usually wouldn't be able to dole out. Um, they're kind of really having a hard time with their messaging, right? So you have a, a lot of sort of public health types going, well, <laughs> you know, it, it, we, we really support the president. He's been great, but I, I think it's, it's too soon to call it the end of the pandemic. And I, I was really struck by the way that Biden chose to phrase his evidence in this whether or not it's off the cuff remark or not remark. He said, well, just look around. People aren't wearing masks. People aren't doing this. I mean, it was it was actually a very um, uh, sort of everyman observation, right? It's like people are not behaving as if the pandemic still exists. On the other hand, the government really wants the pandemic still to exist. Certain segments of the entrenched bureaucracy, particularly the public health bureaucracy, would be very happy for this. The Biden administration itself is, is just, they're supposed to be rolling out a new booster shot, right? The Omicron variant booster shot. They're trying to get Americans to get another, what, fourth or fifth shot. They're trying to get more kids vaccinated. So it's a very strange thing that he didn't seem to, he could have said, you know what, we really come through the worst part of it. We've got these new boosters, all these things. We're doing really well. But he chose to say it was over. So I actually think it was deliberate. I think it it was not off script for him. He said it before, and then he himself has walked it back. But now he's got other people walking back. Well, Tevi, you, you seem to have adopted Joe Biden's definition of what constitutes a pandemic, which is sort of behavioral. Just look around. And if it's if you're in Florida, no one's wearing masks. That's ah, pandemic's over. Different story in, in uh, I don't know, Milwaukee. But that's not how we define anything. It's too arbitrary to justify, for example, the provision of Medicaid coverage to 15 million Americans. Just look around. We got to do this. That doesn't seem like how you would craft sound policy. No. Well, I certainly didn't come on the commentary podcast to be insulted by being told <laughs> that I'm like Joe Biden. <laughs> uh, but, but in all seriousness, you're right. There should be metrics for determining it. But throughout this whole thing, throughout this entire period, there's been a lot of lack of clarity. Right? What does the vaccine do? How does it help? Does it prevent transmission? Oh, if it doesn't prevent transmission, does it prevent severe cases of disease? I've also heard related to Christine's point that the White House is very bullish on this new Omicron variant shot. They think it's really gonna be a game changer. Again, if they can get people to take it in sufficiently large numbers, um, and if it is indeed that game changer. So you're right, we should have some kind of absolute metric for when pandemic is over, but we haven't had this clarity throughout the whole process. And I think that just continues. But if you're on, <clears throat> if you're on the side that doesn't want the pandemic to be over because uh, you're enjoying all the things that we've, we've discussed here, all the, all the emergency benefits and, and, and whatnot and, and power, um, you want the, the, the picture to be blurry. You don't want any clarity here because you don't, ever want the pandemic to be over why why would you you know well um, there's can i just add to and, and yeah. then sorry to interrupt but that's 13 states right now still have a declared pandemic emergency so it's not just you know 13 states are still functioning as if we're in the midst of a of a pandemic no the federal government i mean joe biden's extending this emergency into 2023 right so go ahead abe sorry i just wanted to say well, like, the, the only thing i was going to say is that i you know if and when the there is some clarity uh about data and, and what constitutes the end of the pandemic and 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 some data, in fact, showing that we are at the end of the pandemic. Um, 
we'll see arguments to extend these things for their own sake. I mean, you know, the the the, the idea will be, yes, they, they came about through a horrible pandemic, but they show how 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 much we need X, Y and Z for for Americans who are hurting. Well, I mean, by it, the best you can say, I suppose, for this contradictory statement on the part of the president is that he's got a horse sense of the electorate that suggests that he knows it's a good thing for the pandemic to be behind us. We have some evidence to suggest that he's not wrong. Um, David Leonard wrote up this New York Times uh, commissioned morning consult poll a couple of weeks ago, and we've talked about it on occasion. But generally, his impression was at least the headline conveys the impression that, quote, COVID is, quote, a good issue for Democrats suggests that by 45 to 32 percent, Americans prefer the Democratic approach to the pandemic. They believe American or Republicans rather were, quote, self-righteous, irresponsible, divisive, whereas Democrats were practical, trustworthy and decisive. Um, And insofar as they have a, a mark against them, Democrats were overbearing in their response. But all of this is past tense and it has to be past tense because you can't have a retrospective on this thing when it's active. It has to be in the rearview mirror in order for Democrats to achieve, to secure the political benefits that they think they might get from a post-pandemic environment. So we have a constituency, the expert class, which is decidedly Democratic in disposition, if not voting habits. um, And they're just not going to let Democrats get away with having this political message, this advantageous political message. I'm still trying to get my head around this poll. And I was wondering if it was taken on Martha's Vineyard exclusively. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. (laughs) I I wrote about this at the time. It seems like that Republicans should be very eager to test this proposition with the electorate. Well, the 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 Democrats, I was going to say, sorry, sorry, the the Biden also overbearing. Right. Uh, No, Democrats were overbearing. That was the only mark against them is that they were just a little overzealous in their approach to what was good and righteous during the pandemic. Biden also still wants money for free testing and free, like he still needs, he's still planning, the administration was still planning to go back to Congress and ask for more funding. So it's just, again, to un- he undercut his own plea for funding. If the pandemic's over, why do you need more money for free testing and all the other stuff that they they want to continue to see? Yeah, there is an outstanding request from Congress for emergency funding for a variety of things, Ukraine, natural disasters, but also some $22 billion for COVID-related expenses, whatever they may be, vaccination programs, what have you, preparedness programs. But also we spent $5 trillion on this thing. And a lot of that money is still out there, which raises the question, where did it all go? Abe, you flagged the New York Times piece this morning that dovetails with that, um, including some very fun quotes from CDC director Rochelle Walensky waving her arms around like a wacky inflatable car wash figure saying, you know, everything I can't everything's crazy and we can't we have made no progress. We made no progress over the course of the pandemic. Well, I think she she's she was talking particularly about data, right? I mean, this was this was the this was the focus of the article. How, uh, when it comes to the the, the public health, um, putting the private sector aside, um, all data collection and analysis is like decades behind in terms of technology, in terms of um, uh, uh, what what how much they they need funding to get it up to date. One system doesn't speak to another system. Uh, tons of fields are left blank that are needed. Uh, so in, in health forms and, and 
in, in collating information. So to, to be able to get a real picture of what's going on. So that's what she's going on and on about that, that they've never, they've never known enough about the, 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 the virus or the, 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 the treatment and the, or the, um, or the vaccinations to be able to get a full picture to say, this is working. If you, if you are, if you have, if you if you have uh, X preconditions, then then uh, you're you're this likely to 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 end up hospitalized or uh, uh, the, the the vaccine is this effective with this population. A lot of emphasis in the piece about how there there isn't sufficient breakdown of racial and ethnic uh, uh, data um, that would allow them to to talk about uh, disparate impact. Um, so. Yeah, I mean that that was her, you know, according according to according to them that the the, the private sector uh, sort of they they had to go to the private sector who was who who has the the sort of state of the art capacity here. There's so many complaints about. Or there's two complaints here. One is that the federal government just doesn't do anything especially well, and they didn't say as much, but that's the the takeaway that I got from it. The second is that there's just not enough money. But the states are sitting on a ton of cash still from the American Rescue Plan and associated uh, efforts to relieve the strain of the pandemic. Money being fungible, these states are using some of these funds for their preferred projects. Alabama's building prisons. Some states are replenishing their unemployment insurance trust funds. But there's still plenty of cash sitting around in these states. So the complaint just to me falls on deaf ears. Likewise, there's this frustration that a lot of lefty reformers have when it comes to federal agencies, executive agencies in particular, that they're running on these ancient systems. They're still using like tape and CDs and they just don't have the server capacity. And so we know we, they have antiquated systems. They need to reform their systems. And that's in this piece too. But again, we spent $5 trillion. Well, Teddy, there's this quote. I'm sorry, Christine, please. But I want to get to this quote from Chris, from. Rochelle Walensky. Christine. Oh, I, I was just going to I was going to say there there's lots of cash, but there's no accountability here. And that's another reason why if the pandemic's ongoing, there's not going to be if there's an endpoint, then we can start investigating where all this money is going. What we're going to see instead, especially going into the fall and flu season, is, for example, schools that should have upgraded their HVAC systems and done a lot for air quality, the kind of things that actually would have a have an obvious impact on, on the spread of, of virus. Uh, they haven't spent that money on that. They've spent it on all kinds of other things so that when if we do get another wave, God forbid, they're going to say the same. They're going to have the same messaging they've had the whole time, which is it's unsafe now. These schools are unsafe. We should close them. We should do this. We should go remote. And that's my concern is that because we've had no accountability on how this money is being spent at the local and state level, those complaints in blue states in particular will come back to haunt us in the fall. Yeah, I remember seeing there was something uh, that uh, the administration to this effect. And I forget where I saw it, but it had something to do with, I think it was actually a request from Congress um, talking about the pro likely prospect of a fall surge. So while the president is saying the pandemic's over, his administration is talking about the prospect of a, of a surge in cases in the autumn. It's very confused. But Tevi, I wanted to bring this to your attention because it so dovetails with your, your wonderful piece in the October issue of Commentary Magazine, uh, which is titled the CDC's inadequate reform plan, which is kind of a, a gentle title for a very scathing article. Um, but there's this quote from Walensky in here in this in this piece, or she's so frustrated, quote, we can't be in a position where we have to do this for every disease, every outbreak. 
If we have to reinvent the wheel every time we have an outbreak, we will always be months behind. And it strikes me that they will always be months behind because they will have to do this for every single outbreak based on your assessment alone. Please uh, enlighten us as to what the CDC's reform plan is and why it's awful. Well, it's certainly inadequate uh, that, that is a, at a minimum. So first of all, I just want to say the Rochelle Walensky quote is in the Times article, not in my piece because she hadn't made right, the, yes. the quote, but I would have happily used it because I think it is indicative of the CDC approach, which is to pretend when we are in a non-pandemic era, so before that, before the 2020, that they are this elite pandemic fighting entity that can, can save America from any diseases that come. But they're really a quasi-bureaucratic, partially academic entity that studies behavioral health more than anything else. That's what they are, but they pretend for prestige reasons and for funding reasons that they're this elite pandemic unit. And then when a pandemic happens, everyone says, oh, we have this elite pandemic unit, CDC, come save us. And then CDC says, well, we're just this quasi-academic agency and we mostly look at behavioral health. So that's one of the reasons they failed so miserably in 2020 and throughout this whole pandemic. But the reform plan, such as it is, really focuses, you mentioned uh, racial equity. They, they say they want to create an, off, an equity office. I don't know how that solves any of the problems of the pandemic. I know that it fits in with the Biden administration priorities, but I don't know that it solves the problems of the pandemic. They say they want to be more focused on action. Well, it depends what the action is because they did not show themselves to be so efficient on their action-oriented proposals this last go around. So they, they're not really addressing the core problems of CDC. And the three things that I say in the article that they need to focus on are one, moving away from behavioral health. If you're going to be a pandemic fighting unit, focus on communicable diseases, which are actually potentially civilization altering or ending. Number two is fix your communications because they seem to talk only to a certain segment of the population and the things they say actually repel non-liberal voters and non-liberal thinkers. And they need to have, find some way to be able to talk to conservatives and people who think differently than the way they think. And then the third is find some better way to work with the private sector. I mean, this data thing is perfectly indicative. I mean, we are 20 years into the 21st century. You know, there's the old joke about, oh, isn't there an app for that? Well, there should be an app for this kind of data stuff. And in the New York Times piece, they're talking about people faxing in data and filling it in by hand and CDC requirements that it be faxed. I mean, so they are way behind on this and so many other things. And the, the kind of or problem of the entire pandemic response was how they mishandled the testing because they refused to allow a private sector entity to do it. They insisted that they be the ones to create the test and they did it wrong. And there's indications that they were doing it wrong and they were still not allowing others to step in, meaning others in the private sector step in and create a workable test. So they need to figure out how to integrate the private sector better. They need to communicate better and find some way to have a common language with everyone, not just people who agree with them. And they need to get away from this behavioral health obsession and actually be the pandemic fighting entity they pretend to be. Hey, Tevi, regarding the behavioral health obsession, how did that happen? How did that the, the mission sort of drift? Is it just the impulse that exists in sort of th throughout government to to focus on people's behaviors um, as opposed to sort of objective problems that that are that 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 you're actually supposed to address? Um, or is there something else behind it? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I address some of these items in my piece. So first is and people are always shocked by this, but CDC is not an authorized entity, 
meaning there's no authorizing congressional language saying CDC shall exist and shall do this. I want to say I was shocked by that. I did not know that fact until I read your piece. It was created in the late 40s to deal with malaria, and it was created by executive action. And then it has had these additional centers build up over the years. And since pandemics are generally once in a century, maybe twice in a century type things, they had to focus on problems that were acute at the time, things that attract funding and attract scientists. And the scientists and the, and the public health people are especially interested in these behavioral health things. Because if you are focused on preventing smoking or preventing overeating, that is a constant issue in American society. Again, it's not civilization altering and it's not communicable like the pandemic diseases are. So I think there should be more focus on those. But those are things that you can get a lot of attention for in this academic or the quasi-academic world. But just being the guy who focuses on pandemic, you've got to be like the clock that's right, the broken clock that's right twice a day. So if your moment comes, then the pandemic is big. But the rest of the time, they're focused on these other issues. So there's a lot of interest throughout the throughout all times on behavioral health issues in the public health world, less interest on pandemic. And then when pandemic comes, they're kind of caught with their pants down. I when when we've said a couple of times, like you want this like sort of CDC SWAT team, which it's marketed itself as being in a pandemic. It's like we're ready, we're at the ready, and you you know the entire country expected a SWAT team to descend and help us all, and instead we get like you know a bunch of super nannies going, you know who who actually even on the behavioral health side, I will say, have not done their job. If you look at the obesity rates in this country, and you would think that they would be able to combine forces, their tiny pseudo SWAT team and the behavioral uh, uh, folks, because during during the pandemic, a lot of those behavioral factors were exacerbated, addiction, obesity rates. There were a lot of health problems that have developed after as a result of pandemic lockdowns and, and the, the complete rupture in people's everyday activities. So it, it I ended your piece going, oh, man, I'm even more concerned about how the CDC, uh, uh, what its plans are. Two things that I think are really important. I hope our, our, our listeners will also go read your piece because it's excellent. Two other points, and both of these are a bit of a hobby horse for me. One is the idea that a sclerotic government bureaucracy that's proven itself an utter failure in a state of emergency should be able to reform itself from within. They need outside. Uh, you make a very good point here about how they need some outside people coming in and giving them uh, advice and guidance about how to restructure. But the other thing was about the teachers unions and how the the openness to politicization on the part of Walensky and the CDC during this moment of crisis is very worrisome because it might not be the teachers unions next time who are in, in you know trying to inform public health decision making. Could be another special interest group, and any American, regardless of their political proclivity, should be concerned about the CDC being that willing to cave on matters of public health for political purposes. And so maybe you could explain a little more why you found that particular episode with Randy Weingarten and the Teachers Union um, and the CDC so, so horrifying. Yeah, it was particularly shocking that uh, the Randy Weingarten from the from the teachers unions, who you know, was probably the number one advocate for not letting kids get back into school, because that's serving the interest of her members, meaning the teachers. If you if you can be paid and not work, then that, that, you know, that's kind of the ultimate goal from a union member or a union leader. So she goes and consults with CDC on what to do. And she's probably the worst person in America to do that consultation. And then there's revelations about these conversations and the effusive thank you letter that her union sent to CDC saying, thank you so much for taking our input. And there's outrage, outrage everywhere. Why is Randy Weingarten going to tell the CDC anything? So the, the 
proneness to politicization is a real problem with CDC. And it makes you wonder about their judgment in who they're talking to, who they're listening to, and, and what they're trying to tell us. And then the point you're making about the behavioral health, Christine, underscores another thing that I get at in the piece, which is the very focus on behavioral health by CDC made them start to look at pandemic, at COVID, as a behavioral health issue and use that same nanny state mentality to wag their finger at people who were not behaving in the way they wanted them to behave. So those are non-pharmaceutical interventions, masking, social distancing, the sort of stuff that you say is, should be a last resort, but sort of became a first resort, at least um, once, once health officials got their hands around this issue very early on in the pandemic, 15 days in or so. And so we, we've lost control. Control is out of our hands. So this is the, the only thing that we can do and began manipulating people telling them things that were not not necessarily true in order to induce the behaviors that they like. But what, regardless of whether that was valuable or not, you do need to have a retrospective on it, right? You do need to issue a final verdict on whether that worked. And the CDC doesn't seem to have any interest in performing a final verdict on whether social distancing or masking, which are still encouraged in many parts of the world, in many parts of this country, rather, um, whether they were required not, for toddlers and Head Start. Sorry, this is I'm, I'm going to always the Biden administration still requires toddlers to mask if they're in Head Start programs. It's did that did that not go away? I thought Head no, Start still oh, there. Great. All right. So we're there's still seems to be no time. appetite to look back on whether or not these NPIs actually performed as advertised. How can you ref, how can you how can you do this? How can you how can you reform the CDC if their primary intervention in this process didn't work and no one wants to talk about it? All right, look, well, I'm taking, in my piece, I'm taking the perspective of someone who's worked at HHS, who oversaw CDC, who wants CDC to be better. And I'm glad that they said, okay, let's look at our failure. And she actually was pretty explicit, Walensky, uh, in her statement that when this big moment came that CDC had been preparing for for 75 years, we failed. Right? So she said that. She didn't use the word failed. She used more bureaucratic uh, euphemism language. But she acknowledged that they did not perform up to standards. And they said, okay, let's look into this. So I was gladdened by the fact that they're looking into it, but that email that she sent around to the staff giving an update on where this reform is and where this re-examination of CDC is was extremely problematic. And that's what prompted me to write the piece because it indicates that they're going about this re-examination in the wrong way that is likely to double down on the missteps of the last two years. You know, the CDC and Public health apparatus in general should be, in one respect, very thankful that Trump was president for the first year of the pandemic, because whatever people didn't like about the country's handling of the pandemic was going to be laid at Trump's feet, right? Not there. In fact, the complaint was he wasn't deferring to the CDC enough. He was he was doing it his own way with his own, you know, sort of team of fools. Um, and this this took a lot of uh, pressure and, and a lot of sort of like close examination o away from from all the all the things that that CDC and other other aspects of the, of the public health bureaucracy were, were doing poorly. Yeah, it, it let CDC off the hook in, in many ways. And uh, you can see it from the people who were the political public health officials over the last two years. On the, on the one hand. They didn't want to take the full on, let's shut down everything approach. But on the other hand, they wanted to defer to the public health people in their departments. And they always seemed a little betwixt and between. And yeah, having 
Trump as a foil was was very useful. I mean, if let's say Hillary Clinton had been president during that, I mean, we would not have had better results because we did not have the mechanisms to deal with it, meaning we didn't have a good, I mean, CDC wouldn't have had a better test with Hillary Clinton. They would have had the same bad test. Uh, we, we didn't have any therapeutics when the thing started, even though some people, including myself, had warned that coronavirus was a potential problem in advance. And so we weren't prepared on that front. And the vaccine arguably would have come out much slower right. had was, someone yeah. else, had a Democrat been in charge or, or you know, perhaps anyone else been in charge. I mean, it was this willingness to run roughshod on the bureaucracy that helped get the vaccine out faster. So well, go ahead. I was just going to say the and the the account, the other factor is that the the um, the media, which was supposed to be keeping the public informed on a day to day basis about what was happening, obviously had a very antagonistic relationship with Trump that hasn't carried over to Biden. So, for example, and, uh, you know, St. Anthony Fauci yesterday uh, even said that by critic gently criticized Biden's comments. And, you know, we've seen a sort of, oh, well, they're discussing it. There seems to be some turmoil. Whereas when when Trump would say something totally wackadoodle at a press conference and he would be undercut by Fauci or, or Deborah Burks, the media spent that was like four news cycles of how insane the president is and how you should never listen to the president. You should only focus on what public health says at the same time that public health, as we know from your piece, Debbie, really didn't know what it was doing either and was making some poor choices along the way. So yeah, the more please. all true and unfortunate. <laughs> so the more we talk about it, the more it seems like Democrats will benefit from a retrospective on COVID as long as we don't actually talk about COVID, as long as it remains sort of a hazy memory that we have a vague recollection of, but nobody really wants to delve into the details, um, <clears throat> which, frankly, I, I can't imagine that's not informing the backlash against Joe Biden's comments here. Uh, set this kind of a retrospective on what worked and what didn't really doesn't do Democrats a whole lot of favors. I, I don't understand, frankly, why Republicans aren't taking up this this issue. I get it. There's pocketbook issues to talk about. and They want to get away from the social stuff. Social stuff isn't hurting, isn't helping them. Sorry, Tevi, this isn't your department. This is, you know, just punditry, naked, raw, ugly punditry, but nevertheless. Um, but there's, I mean, Ron DeSantis was accused of being complicit in murder. Brian Kemp was but accused of being complicit in murder. They're it. on the ballot. Well, they well, are DeSantis, talking about DeSantis is talking about it, but in a way that I think is kind of savvy, because I think, as you said all along, though, and I think you're right, people don't want to revisit what they did or what happened to them during a pandemic, and particularly during the kind of really dark days of lockdowns and, you know, before the vaccine, when there was just a lot of fear, understandable fear and anxiety. So what DeSantis is doing is saying, I made those tough decisions, even going against what the federal government was saying people should do. As a, as a leader of a state, I decided I'm going to keep my people in Florida safe. Here's what we did. He actually turned out to be right on a lot of those things, right? He was correct about making sure that nobody could go visit um, at, the, uh, at the retirement communities and the, where older people who were the most vulnerable were. He was correct about masking and, and social distancing being just like, as you said, items of last resort. He was really correct about schools and there and that's actually something that i think from a national perspective a lot of parents who might otherwise think ron DeSantis is some crazy republican they look at what he did with schools in florida and they said wow he actually tried to look at the evidence look at what was best for kids and listen to parents and that's where i go back to your point about wine garden and your piece and, and the cdc 
I remember the response when they were criticized, when it when it actually emerged, like they weren't going to tell anybody they were talking to the unions. But when it was reported on by the New York Post and others that this was happening, the response was this very sort of feeble, well, they're stakeholders. So we we talked to all the stakeholders to which everybody immediately pointed out, well, where were the parents at the table? Where were the people representing the interests of the children at the table? They didn't look at stakeholders. They look at Democratic donors, which of which the teachers unions are the biggest. So the Republicans who are being savvy, I think are doing it the way DeSantis is doing it. And some people in Congress, there was a letter sent by some senators, I believe, asking Biden about if pandemic is over, you know, why do we have all these emergency uh, things still in place? But they have to be careful because I don't think they want to remind voters of how awful that that those two years were. Yeah, two, two points on what Christine's saying. First of all, on the stakeholders point, I mean, that is so disingenuous by CDC because, again, having worked there and seen them in action, they do not want to talk to a stakeholder if, let's say, it's industry or a private company. I mean, they hate those stakeholders and they're very loath to have any conversation with them about any issue. So that's the first thing. But the other thing that Christine's making is this is a savvy point about people not wanting to revisit the pandemic. And we all now know about the 1918 flu, but the 1918 flu was largely forgotten by history. And it was kind of resurrected by John Barry's book in the early 2000s, which George W. Bush read, and I was working for Bush at the time, and it led to Bush's creation of a whole pandemic plan. But one of the reasons that 1918 flu was largely forgotten is because Americans were kind of embarrassed by how they reacted to it. First of all, Woodrow Wilson did a horrific job tried to suppress information about it, allowed troop transports to continue that were spreading the disease, even though he knew it was a problem. And America kind of just let 675,000 people die. You know, the average life expectancy went down by a decade after that 1918 flu. So America was kind of embarrassed and shell-shocked by it. And we really didn't discuss it after that initial period of 1918 to let's say early 1920s. And it, again, it gets resurrected by John Barry later. But this discomfort with not doing well in a disastrous situation is, is something that I think is something that I think we're going to continue to see in this case. Although, you know, Ron DeSantis might want to bring it up because I think his state did pretty well. But a lot of other people might just be sheepish about it. Well, that this is very funny because if you link this to the first part of our discussion, we're in this situation where uh, we either don't want to revisit what happened or we don't want to let go. We, 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 we want to we want to continue to live in it. Well, no, the executive there, no, 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 no normal, healthy middle ground can happen here. Executive agencies most certainly do. And that's that's a really significant opportunity. So, Tevi, this that observation sort of informed my com approach commercially to writing my last book is the assumption that nobody actually wanted to hear anything about the pandemic because nobody wants to revisit it. Nobody wants to talk about what we did during it. It's a black mark that we all just kind of want to move on from. But if Democrats are holding tight to this thing, then it's political malpractice for Republicans not to revisit the 2020s, early 2021, the, pro the promises that were made on the campaign trail by Democrats, by Joe Biden, by Kamala Harris, about where we would be at this point uh, in this administration and issue a verdict, issue a grade. Uh, Democrats are offering up that opportunity. In fact, it's probably best practice for a society that as as Dr. Walensky says, really does not want to have to do this again and reinvent the wheel every single time we do it. We really do have to perform this kind of retrospective. So Republicans would be doing a public service, but they too don't really want to talk about this. I don't think anybody really wants to talk about this except us, uh, which is 
which isn't good, just isn't well, good for I, society or government. But I have found some Democratic politicians, particularly in blue states with with uh, high crime rates, they love to talk about the pandemic as an excuse for why they haven't dealt with a chronic crime problem, which began before the pandemic and has been made much worse uh, during and if we are indeed after after the pandemic. So they I mean, you've seen this right there. I mean, I see this in my own city in, in D.C. The pandemic is used as an excuse for why things have gotten out of control rather than the real uh root cause, which is that we have progressive prosecutors who refuse to actually hold people accountable for their crimes. We have a we have a cash bail. We have all this or no cash bail. We have all these these uh, decisions in the criminal justice system that have that were obvious and that what people warned about. And now we're seeing uh, the results of. But it's been very easy as an escape hatch for many Democratic politicians, particularly in blue states and blue cities to say, well, it was the pandemic. What could we do? We just all have to we all have to live with this. It's the pandemic. And I don't think voters are any longer uh, I think they they put up with that for a while and accepted that for a while. But I, I see a lot more blue city voters in particular saying, well, is it really? Let, let's really see if that's the case. You know, it makes me wonder what you're saying, Christine, is if we could have a, um, a Giuliani moment again. I know we're, you know, current iteration of Giuliani is not something anybody wants to talk about. Giuliani 1.0. But 1.0 Giuliani, I mean, uh, we're actually really 2.0. I mean, he was the tough prosecutor that he was the, the reformist mayor. Uh, that was a reaction to 2,200 murders taking place in, in New York City. I mean, New York City was out of control. You didn't feel safe anywhere. All people talked about was crime. And that led to mayors like Giuliani who came in and said, let's get a handle on this crime problem. And you know, it didn't take long for us to forget the lessons of that. And so now we're, we're dealing with it, with it again. But I could see that happening. Uh, you, know, you, you mentioned something about a political malpractice. You know, if that were actionable, Republicans would have a queue of actions against them, not just a, a pandemic, but it, it does seem like a politically savvy Republican Party could make that an issue to maybe try and reclaim some territory in Blue City America. A politically savvy Republican Party would be something to see. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, maybe Tavi, a politically okay. savvy Republican politician. You know, sure. Let's give it to right. one yeah. rather than group. All right. So, Tevi, I'm going to pose a hypothetical to you. Your, your nominated HHS SEC. You're in front of your confirmation hearing right now. Uh, what's your plan? How do we avoid this again? What's your your opening statement? You've already gotten your biography out of the way. What do you want? What do you want to put before the committee here? First of all, I would say that you cannot operate as if the next pandemic is going to happen tomorrow, right? I think we're going to spend a lot of money over the next few years trying to prevent a pandemic in 2024 when it may not be necessarily wasting money. And what we had when I was working with George W. Bush was an all hazards approach where we were trying to be prepared for all kinds of different scenarios and using the same tools to respond to those scenarios. And I think what we had in 2020 was we, there was a creation of three layers of defense and those three layers of defense all failed in this pandemic. Number one was international monitoring. Number two was testing, which could lead to tracking and tracing. And number three was having countermeasures in the strategic national stockpile. And we failed on all three of those in 2020. And I think those should all be rebuilt. Let's improve our international monitoring and be more skeptical of China in the future. Let's not put CDC in front of testing, but have private sector entities who are better and faster at it, create the tests so that we can respond more quickly. And then let's rethink what we have in the strategic national stockpile. And especially now that we have these mRNA vaccines, which can be adjusted very quickly, let's put more of a focus on those things that can address multiple hazards. And then I think we'll be more ready for the pandemics of the future. 
Is the CDC still valuable? Well, first I was going to say you're hired. I'm a senator. You're hired. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we talk a lot about a private sector. It should take a larger role. International monitoring, take a larger role. Sort of outside the purview of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. What, what is the core function the CDC serves that no other agency can? I think we need a CDC that does what the CDC is supposed to do and what the CDC pretends it does when it's talking about itself, as opposed to what it actually does when it's doing its quasi-academic behavioral health research. So I, and, and I argue for this in the piece, is I would break out the CDC and take away all the behavioral health stuff, put that in a separate agency. I don't think it'll be a popular agency. I think it'll have a tougher time getting congressional appropriations for exclusively that mission. And then you have a separate agency that just focuses on pandemic health, preventing communicable diseases. We're not gonna be active. We're not gonna be in the newspapers every year, but when we're a break glass emergency, when something bad happens, we are ready to go. And that agency should be well-funded, but it's not gonna be the behemoth that overall CDC is. And it should have close relationships with our international partners, especially in, in, the, in the Western nations. And we should be monitoring these potential outbreaks and ready to respond to them when they happen. But we should not be out there telling Americans what kind of sodas to drink. This is brilliant to create an executive agency designed to be defunded. <laughs> it's very conservative. Yeah. Can, I, can I ask one other question, though? Sure. Should there be accountability in the form of anyone's head rolling at the current CDC for the way the CDC conducted itself over the course of this pandemic? I mean, there's political accountability in a way. So, you know, Robert Redfield was the CDC head under Trump and he's no longer there. So, I mean, the, the agency is going to say, well, we, we handled it that way. I think that ideally this reform plan would look more carefully at the people who are supposed to be doing pandemic response within the CDC and consider who should be in and out. But uh, th those people really weren't front and center in the um, in, in the American living room. So we, we don't really know who all of them are. I mean, when it goes well, there's a guy named uh, uh, Rich Besser who was at CDC during the 2009 flu that, that took place and uh, that was the swine flu and he did so well that he ended up becoming a abc news top medical correspondent because he was uh, he was very reassuring he was on the tv all the time i don't think we had anyone who kind of emerged in, in that way so no superstars emerged i'd like to see if there were some people who didn't perform if, if they would be shown the door yeah i mean i just recall rochelle walensky by the way the swine flu that i remember that that was one where i might my kids were very high risk. They're very young at the time. And we queued for, for long times to get those two shots. And they, you know, they were, they, it protected them and, and the way that it was handled and the communication seemed very good. It was not a lot of fear mongering, but it was like, we are concerned if your kids are this age and here's the risk and you need to go do this. And, and people did it. And the lines were very, very long. And, and it was, the process was arduous, but it did work. I just remember every time Rochelle Walensky opened her mouth during the height of the pandemic, she seemed afraid. And that was actually one of the things that, although her base loved it, it's like, look at even the head of the CDC is terrified of sending her children to camp. We have to shut down all the summer camps. But I felt that that fear, that fear really leached into the messaging that, it, that the agency should not be giving. Like, that's not the message you want to be sending the American public is like fear rather than competence and, and con calm concern. Yeah, Walensky even said how afraid she was at one point. She talked about how uh, dangerous this was, and then that was not a reassuring message. The other thing about that 2009 swine flu, that takes place in the very beginning of the Obama administration, before anyone was yet approved or confirmed at HHS. 
And what they did was they dusted off the Bush flu response plan that we had worked on in the Bush years after Bush read the John Barry book. And it worked very well in terms of making sure that that, that one did not get out of control. And the biggest misstep in that flu, people don't remember this, but the biggest misstep in that flu was by Vice President Joe Biden who said, I wouldn't go on any enclosed spaces right now. And he threatened basically to shut down all air and, uh, and subway and um, public transportation uh, with that misstep. And the White House had to walk back his comments because they were so bad. But overall, the administration handled it well, again, using the Bush blue plan. This reminds me of a question I forgot to ask you regarding um, Joe Biden's declaration that the pandemic is over. Does this have any impact on how the courts are going to review what they're reviewing currently regarding uh, the administration's um, pandemic-related initiatives. The federal uh, vaccine mandate is before the courts right now. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think an appeal to the FAA's masking mandate is still in the works. The arguments that have been made, as far as I've been following them, are, are essentially jurisdictional, that the executive branch has the capacity to do this, so they, their ability to do it should not be curtailed, regardless of what the pandemic is, the status of the pandemic is. But Will courts um, take into account the president's comments? I mean, I can't recall how many times Donald Trump said something stupid that would affect how the judiciary would review his policies and what his intentions were in implementing them in the first place. Yeah, I, I may be wrong, but this is the rare policy podcast that has zero lawyers on it, right? We have two PhDs and no lawyers. <laughs> nope. So, yep. Uh, which it's I think why people love us, Tim. They'll just pretend. Yeah, sure. <laughs> right, it makes it more interesting. But yes, I would think that, um, you know, if I were a lawyer in one of those cases, I would make the case that the president has declared the pandemic over. So this kind of ends the reason for having that conversation. But, uh, but I don't know that yet. Last question Did we underfund our pandemic response? And you can tell by the nature of my question that I'm skeptical. Yeah, this whole thing, it reminds me of Arthur Oaken's concept of the leaky bucket, which is used to, regarding uh, social service transfer payments. Uh, that there's the, the free market is the most efficient, but the government is necessary in certain circumstances. But when you get the government involved, you're passing things into a leaky bucket. So money kind of disappears. And I think we have an extremely leaky bucket when it comes to our, our diffuse public health system. And I think that leaky bucket is one of the reasons why we keep hearing about these pots of money that are here and there, and they're not actually doing anything. And I think that this kind of elite, non-behavioral focused pandemic response agency that was, let's say, hyper-modern, used modern data, uh, I think would solve the problem to, the extent, to some extent of the leaky bucket by having one place that collected the data, that dealt with the responses, that uh, worked on what the tests were, and work closely with the private sector on developing the tools we need. And I think that could address the problem. But I think our problem has not been underfunding, but poor use of the funding that we have. Any public health reformers who are listening to this, you have your marching orders. You know what to do. Tevi Troy, Deputy Secretary of HHS, best-selling historian and commentary contributor. Thank you so much for being here today. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Guys, we'll be back tomorrow. For Abe, Christine, and the absent John Podhoritz, I'm Noah Rothman. Keep the candle burning.